Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Koka, and we're going to start our show this week with another interview in our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians. The most common question that I got growing up was, what are you? I just never understood why, why can't you include all of me? You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with? I need all my mixed people to talk about it, express yourself, your perspective. I'm mixed, and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family. I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing. (laughs) KQED's Marisa Lagos and I have been talking with folks who identify as mixed or multiracial across the state, from rappers to writers and teachers. Woman, daughter, adoptee, AIDS orphan, Hapa, Japanese-American, Asian, Asian-American, queer, musician, writer, martial artist, alive. Those are the words a 21-year-old Joami Ito Gates wrote to describe herself when she participated in the Hapa Project. It's a photo exhibit documenting mixed-race people. Now, some 20 years later, Joami says many of those words still describe her. She's also now a mom, an ethnic studies teacher, and an advocate against cultural appropriation in fashion. And she's changed the words she uses to describe her racial background to multiracial Japanese-American. Joemi's the daughter of a Japanese mom and a white Irish-American dad. They met at art school in Kyoto. The story goes that he was wandering around campus, lost, couldn't read the signs, was trying to figure out where his next class was. And my mother and her friend were practicing koto in a room and saw him kind of going back and forth, wandering around. So... um, my mother's friend kind of nudged her and said, you know, why don't you help out that gaijin? Um, gaijin means like foreigner in Japanese um, because my mother was fluent in English at that point and she helped him out. It was the start of a love story that would eventually end in tragedy. But at the beginning, they became friends. He started courting her. They wanted to get married. Um, but my mother's family was very much against the marriage and said that my father had to leave Japan if he was really serious about her. He had to go back to the United States and improve himself. He had to continue to write letters to her and show that he was still interested and serious about getting married. And so he did that and they had this letter exchange for a year and then he came back to Japan. Uh, They got married and thought they might live there, but after the honeymoon, they decided to move to the United States, um, to the Northwest, which is where he was born and raised. So that's that's their love story. That's how they met. It's such a beautiful 
start to imagine that it was through correspondence, right? And mm-hmm. it's such a different mm-hmm. time too, because today mm-hmm. that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. And so your mom was a musician? Yeah, so she was a very talented musician, started studying uh, koto, which is the national instrument of Japan, when she was five years old. And then her younger years around that time, she also started learning shamisen, which is another traditional Japanese instrument. But she was very diligent and committed to her music. She practiced every single day. Um, She won an award as a young person from NHK, um, the Japanese Broadcasting Network. And um, that was her career. She played at Carnegie Hall and the Lincoln Center. She also recorded with Pharaoh Sanders, a famous jazz musician. And one of my favorite moments in her career was when she was featured on Reading Rainbow with my chi- one of my childhood heroes, LeVar Burton. Domo arigato, Yabufuchi-san. I'm sure this crane will bring me much good fortune. Our family were big Trekkies, so I loved him from Reading Rainbow, and I loved him from Star Trek, and I got to meet him on set when I was a little kid, and she was playing koto and talking about Japanese music, and um, so she's featured on the Paper Crane episode of Reading Rainbow. Oh my oh gosh, that's so cool. I'm like having <laughs> flashbacks to the 80s. <laughs> oh yeah, major. <laughs> the Paper Crane. Obviously, your mom's Japanese heritage was a big part of your life. Did they talk to you at all about your identity, about being a mix of a Japanese mom and a white dad? Well, we didn't talk. (laughs) There was silence. And I think that's true for a lot of people, particularly in my generation. You know, I was born in 1980. So we didn't talk about what it meant for me to be a multiracial kid, to be Asian presenting, to have two parents who were of different races and very different cultures and backgrounds. Um, So there was just a lot of silence. And I did experience a tremendous amount of racism um, as a child. And I was quiet about it. I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, So it wasn't until I was, I would say, in my teens that I really started grappling with who am I? What does my identity mean to me? Really making an effort to reclaim my linguistic ties to Japanese, my cultural ties, um, going back to Japan to live with my mother's side of the family um, after I graduated from high school, making sure I took Japanese through college. I also took it in high school. I definitely went through this journey in my teenage years of reclamation and just coming home to myself and, and who, who I am. That journey was directed in part by tragedy. When Joemi was a child in the 1980s, her father contracted HIV. It would change everything. Part of my story is that um, my father was, I don't know how he self-identified, but he was queer. That's how I um, talk about his identity. And in the 80s, he was having affairs um, outside of the marriage with my mother. And he um, did contract HIV, passed it on to my mother. And so she also had HIV. 
you know, of course, at that time in the 80s, she, she it turned into AIDS. And she died when I was eight. And then my father died when I was 10. They had made arrangements for me to move in with friends of theirs, a white family. So when I was 10 years old, I moved in with these family friends and was raised by them. So where did you grow up? And what was that climate like for a kid who was multiracial? So I moved a lot when I was a kid. Um, I lived both on the East Coast and the West Coast. Particularly on the East Coast, I was going to school and we were living in, I would say, predominantly white communities. And so I was often the only one, the only kid of color, particularly the only Asian heritage child. It's interesting, being in the Bay Area was um, a wonderful place to be growing up. I, I had many more friends who looked like me and had a similar kind of lived experience to a certain extent. And there was certainly way more diversity. Um, and living in a white family was culture shock because I was not only navigating the grief of losing my parents, but not having my mother and that cultural uh, foundation in my life was was pretty devastating. Over the years, Joami has found her own ways to maintain deep connections to her mother's heritage, though, both in her personal life, but also professionally as an educator. And she's an outspoken activist who centers some of that work on making the case against cultural appropriation. A lot of that work has focused on fashion, especially the use of kimonos and other traditional Japanese garments by non-Japanese designers. I think one reason it has felt important to me is because so often we see sacred, ceremonial, deeply meaningful garments and cultural pieces appropriated, misused, and commodified, and stripped of the meaning and the significance and the ties to the people of the origin culture that those items and garments are coming from. And to me, that's ultimately dehumanizing. There is this historical context to these kinds of items that I think is really important to understand and learn about and is connected to why I feel passionate about ethnic studies, about our young people learning our true histories of what has happened to people of color in this country. Yeah, I hear you coming from Indian heritage, uh, you know, which is a culture that has been appropriated in so many ways, everything from yoga oh, yeah. to, mm -hmm. you know, white people wearing saris and yeah. <laughs> following gurus and stuff. I think it's been yeah. um, a real journey for me to also celebrate and wear things like, you know, my grandmother's saris or even mm -hmm. just Indian clothing um, because I'm mixed and because there's so much less visibility in my community of mixed people than there are in other AAPI communities. I sometimes fear that I'm going to be seen as like one of those appropriators <laughs> or exotifiers mm -hmm. myself. I do feel strongly that if you're someone who's multiracial and you're on this journey to 
come home to yourself, to connect with your heritages. I do feel that it's a wonderful and important thing to connect with heritage garments. When I wear my kimono and my yukata and my haori, I feel the generations wrapped around me. Even if it's not a piece that's been handed down in my family, I feel this cultural hug <laughs> when I'm wearing these garments. So what moved you to want to advocate for ethnic studies? I know you're pushing for it to begin in TK and actually go all the way through 12th grade. I believe ethnic studies is for everyone. It's a place where we can show up and be whole people and be fully seen. And it's about being curious about the world around us, about each other, and really questioning why are things like this? That doesn't feel good. Why, why is this thing happening? And questioning structural racism, power dynamics, patterns in history. Also, I believe ethnic studies is joyful because we are celebrating people in our communities of color who are often hidden, who are invisibilized. So to me, ethnic studies is also an act of joy. We've been talking a lot about your family, but your husband has Black heritage. And I wonder in this moment when we're seeing so much tension between Asian and Black communities, how do you talk about this at home with your child? How do you think about bridging those gaps as a family? For me and my family, we really focus on, for example, role models like Yuri Kochiyama, who was such a bridge builder and brought communities of color together, particularly Asian and Black. Asian Americans must be more vocal, visible, and take stands on crucial issues. Hopefully, Asians will side with the most dispossessed, oppressed, and marginalized, remembering our own history. And then making sure that we're part of this movement of Japanese American folks who are showing up in solidarity with the Black community to fight against anti-Black racism and to fight for Black American reparations because, again, of this, this historical tie. I just want to end with the last question, which is there's a lot in the world that's really hard right now, and you're in the trenches um, around a lot of stuff that's hard and takes work and can be painful. How do you find joy in your life right now? I, I'm like, do I give you the like interview radio ready answer? I do. Do I give you the real answer? <laughs> give us the real answer. Give us the so, real answer. Let's see. The real answer is I love my reality TV. <laughs> okay, what show? Yeah, like oh, tell, oh, okay. be specific. So RuPaul's Drag Race, and then you know my child brings me so much joy. She just started taking taiko drumming, and it is the best thing seeing her just banging on the drum her legs are spread apart and she's just like just hitting the drum so hard and she's keying and it's amazing so that's been bringing me a lot of joy Joemi Ito-Gates is a Bay Area-based ethnic studies teacher and fashion activist. We talked to her for our series, Mixed, Stories of Mixed Race Californians. And if you're mixed race, we'd love to hear one thing you think only fellow mixed folks get about being mixed. Let us know. You can head over to CaliforniaReport.org or find the link on Twitter at KQED News. 
Coming up next week on Mixed, our conversation with Chicana playwright and writer Sheree Moraga. She edited a groundbreaking anthology in 1981 featuring lesbian feminists of color and perspectives from mixed race women like herself. However you look impacts how people perceive you, which then affects how you see yourself, right? So racism is real and shade is real, right? So trying to, to talk about that and still say that if you ask me how I feel, I feel like a Mexican. That's coming up next week as our series Mixed continues here on the California Report magazine. We just heard how Joemi Ito Gates is using her platform to push back against cultural appropriation in fashion. Now we've got a story about how the fashion industry is a huge polluter. You might not realize it when trying on a new pair of jeans, but some estimates put the greenhouse gas emissions from clothing and shoe manufacturing at 8% of the global total. And thousands of tons of textiles end up in landfills each year. While fast fashion has many Americans buying more and more new cheap clothes, others are wondering what they can do to help. From KCBX in San Luis Obispo, Gabriela Fernandez profiles two California women who are championing more sustainable ways to shop. I met Jessica Gonzalez a couple years ago. We were both bridesmaids in a wedding near Gilroy. Her style immediately caught my eye. She's the type of person who can rock stripes and cheetah print in the same outfit. But she also loves to highlight her culture through her style by incorporating folklorico dresses with modern accessories. I wanted to know how she put her looks together, so I met her at her favorite place, the Goodwill in Gilroy. Can I get a delegate to the front for a carryout, please? My juju getting a cart before finding anything. I'm a weird juju to where if I go to a thrift store <laughs> and I get a cart first, it's bad juju. So hopefully I still find something, but I see something right now that I kind of like. Let's see. She remembers riding her bike with her siblings in this parking lot while her mom shopped. Oh, this is sexy. She says her mom was a genius at turning thrift store finds into one-of-a-kind pieces when she was a kid. She would just, like, maneuver it to make it, like, cute. Because, you know, of course, I was already a fashionista at that age. At the time, it was all they could afford. But Jessica is glad her mom taught her how to see the potential of every outfit. She would buy me little trinkets and then she'd glue them or sew them onto a denim jacket that all three of us wore. Now that she's an adult, Jessica has turned her thrifting obsession into a side hustle. She's a full-time special education teacher in San Jose, but she moonlights as a thrift store stylist. She loves the feeling of finding her clients that perfect item. That's like the most fun part for me is like the being able to like bring someone who doesn't like shopping for themselves and then being like, I want an outfit that makes me feel good about myself. And I'm like sick. Jessica often turns to social media to find inspiration, but she's noticed that skinny white women dominate the space. For everyone else who falls outside of the outliers, they have to, like, be creative. She made an Instagram account to celebrate less mainstream types of beauty. Hello, just wanted to go through this outfit with you really quick. I'm wearing a thrifted anthropology jumpsuit. I love jumpsuits. She showcases innovative fashion from plus-sized women of color. People that look like her. I think that, for me, the most important thing is 
And I think you could see this in my own style is bringing in my Hispanic culture. She also started to realize that a lot of the fashion world is pretty terrible for the environment. She was surprised to learn how many clothes are made with plastic, which can take hundreds of years to decompose. And she says a lot of people buy cheap clothes they don't need. It's so wasteful for people to buy clothes, wear them for one season, give them away, and then we never see them again. Jessica says a lot of what doesn't sell in thrift stores ends up in landfills. So doing what she does best, thrifting, is actually helping the environment. I feel like there is this whole new generation of people who are falling in love with secondhand and falling in love with thrifting like I did when I was a kid. Thrifting with Jessica got me curious about other ways to tackle the fashion industry's waste problem. So I was intrigued when I saw that a local San Luis Obispo art museum had an exhibit called Dirty Laundry. Chilean artist Minga Opazo says her art is meant to make people stop and think about social and environmental injustices. I know how to make a garment. I know how much time it takes and I know how much resources we make to make it. And then it's just like $2 and then you throw it away. <laughs> it's personal for her. She says a lot of discarded clothing from the U.S. and Europe ends up in Chilean landfills. It was happening in the north of Chile and now we have these like dumps of like massive amount of textiles in the desert. Um, and they usually bury them or burn them. The mountains of fabric, most of which doesn't decompose, got Minga interested in what she calls bio-art. It's art that's meant to eat itself. I have a loom in my studio, and so the process of weaving like uh, scrap textiles that I found into this kind of like a basket-looking thing. Then she introduces mushrooms called mycelium to the sculpture. To see if we can figure out a way to get rid of textile waste. Minga hopes this sculpture will offer visitors some hope. If the mycelium does its job, maybe a similar strategy could be used in landfills. Let's collaborate with mycelium. Let's collaborate with other composters. Let's see how we can grow this in a bigger scale. More than anything, Minga hopes her art opens people's eyes to the harm of fast fashion. Maybe then they'll buy a little less. For The California Report, I'm Gabriela Fernandez in San Luis Obispo. Finally, to close out the show this week, we're heading to a night of boot scootin' boogie. At a spot that's a little more than your usual honky-tonk. We're at Club Bahia on the east side of Echo Park in Los Angeles at a Monday night line dancing event called Stud Country. Uh, it's the queer church of line dancing, so there's a really strong queer community here. Stud Country is a weekly dance party, and it's a safe space for folks of all genders, sexualities, and dancing abilities. KCRW's Danielle Churaguayo recently hit the dance floor, and she dosy does from here. 
On a Monday night here, you're bound to see three things. Cowboy boots, tight blue jeans, and a whole lot of fringe. Ah, yeah. I, I got my snake boots on right now. Uh, had to match that. And I'm wearing all brown in my uh, broke back mountain jacket, representing really hard. I have a leather jacket with some fringe that's been passed around my friend group over many years. <laughs> Came to me when I was living in Texas. Felt right for the night. Uh, so these are my cowboy boots that I got as a graduation present uh, from high school. Blue tips with some red sort of petals with a brown base. And then going up the calf, you have an off-white with birds and flowers and hearts with arrows. These folks are strutting their best cowboy ensembles on the dance floor at Club Bahia, a discotheque that's hosted Latino dance parties for nearly 50 years. But tonight, instead of cumbias and salsas, country music is blasting through its speakers. Wherever you turn, there's neon. Think green palm trees and hot pink trimming, disco balls hang from the ceiling, glittering in the spotlight above the dance floor. And tonight is Oklahoma native Maddie Wager's first time out at Stud Country. There's a part of me that's like, I should know how to line dance at this point. This is, this is the culture that's in Oklahoma, but I think I really pushed it away because of the culture that it's not super queer friendly and it's a pretty, it can be an intense environment uh, if you're not a straight person. Addie says traditional line dancing spaces are not always a safe place for folks that are part of the LGBTQ community. It's funny because, yeah, my friends have been like, let's go line dancing. And I'm like, damn it, I should know this. But then I'm like, no, this is going to be a reclaiming moment. I'm going to go out and learn how to line dance. And now? I'm listening to the music, I'm hearing the stomps, I'm seeing the steps that I would see in Oklahoma, but with a very different clientele. And now seeing a bunch of fabulous queer cuties out here doing the same steps, the same music, it's really filling me with joy. Line dancing for queer people isn't actually new in LA, just new to Echo Park. Stud Country's founders got this party started specifically to replace a different everyone's invited dance party they all loved. Over at Oil Can Harry's, a Studio City gay bar that closed during the pandemic after 50 years in business. It was a gay dive bar, honky-tonk, basically. Sean Monahan grew up in the Bay Area, but line dancing was a fixture of his childhood. So when he got to Oil Can Harry's, he'd found his people. Uh, I saw all these men doing couples dances together and, and it was so beautiful and it was so loving and everyone was so nice. After Oil Can Harry's closed in 2021, leaving a Texas-sized hole in Sean's life, he and his friend Bailey Salisbury had an idea for an in-person and socially distant shindig. You know how there's that iconic Fry's building with the flying saucer that's crashing into the building? <laughs> we broke into that parking lot. We used a, a bolt cutter to break into the parking lot. And we brought a sound system and we just had like a midday to sunset line dancing party. And it was so much fun and it was so cool. And From there, the duo started hosting pop-ups at small bars, dance studios, and wherever else they found a space. Then a friend recommended Club Bahia. And Michael, the owner, answered and said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> Club Bahia has been home to Stud Country since October. Their time there is limited. The property was purchased by a real estate firm. And there's no telling when word might come down that they've got to close their doors. Until then, Sean and his stud country flock are determined to keep the dance party going for as long as possible. 
And hey, maybe I'll see you there sometime. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Chiriguayo. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor. Susie Racho is our producer director. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Jessica Carissa is our intern. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.